When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kalina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to John Horgan about his new book, Pay Attention, Sex, Death and Science. A day in the inner and outer lives of a college professor blogger, divorced father, thinker, and yearner. What would it feel like to wake up inside the head of someone who writes about science for a living? John Horgan, acclaimed author of the bestseller The End of Science, answers that question in his genre-bending new book, Pay Attention, a stream-of-consciousness account of a day in the life of his alter ego, Emmanuel, a blogger, college professor, and divorced father. Pay attention is a profane, profound meditation on the entanglements of our inner and outer worlds and the elusiveness of truth. Well, John, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Galena. Oh, it's great to have you. All right. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global COVID pandemic uh, uh, just recently, I was wondering if you can start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work? And maybe some uh, main takeaways that you have gathered from all of this experience. Well, it hasn't affected my work as much as it has affected the work of many people. I am a, a professor and writer. My I teach college, so my classes have shifted over to Zoom, but that's not that big a deal for me. Uh, it just means I have to move from my couch over to the uh, table in my living room to teach classes. As far as my writing goes, what I normally do is I read books, I look at things on the internet, I talk to people by phone, um, by email, uh, now by Zoom, and I think about stuff and I write things down. So I have a blog for Scientific American, uh, actually a column now um, that comes out twice a month. 
and I have to churn out a pretty steady stream of pieces for that. Um, if anything, the pandemic has given me more time to think and reflect on some of the issues that have obsessed me since I was really young. So it looks like you've adjusted your commute. Yes, right. <laughs> well, uh, so you're referring to, uh, to my book, Pay Attention, which we are going to be talking about very soon. Uh, that book describes uh, a day in my life um, as of about uh, like eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, when I used to live in upstate New York and I had to commute for about two and a half hours to get to my job teaching at a university, Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right across from uh, New York City. For the past seven years or so, I have lived in Hoboken and now I have about a five minute walk to uh, to my office. So that's been a big change in my life since since I wrote my book. Oh, fair enough. So uh, are there any new habits that you've developed? Maybe we're working on your sourdough starter. <laughs> right. Um, my life is pretty boring. The big question for me uh, was whether I could play hockey during the pandemic for, um, I don't know, 20, I, I've played hockey all my life since I was a little kid. And for the past... Uh, 25 or 30 years, I've played with a group of guys in a part of New York called the Hudson Highlands. This is where I used to live. It's very dramatic, um, lots of hills and uh, ravines. This is around the Hudson River. And uh, I and a bunch of other, some old guys, also young people and, and women join us occasionally, have played hockey on frozen ponds in um, in this area and it's one of the great joys of my life and i was worried that the pandemic would keep us from playing but we had a fantastic season last year um we wore masks at the beginning you know we're playing outside so we didn't have to worry too much about uh about social distancing mm. and um, after a while people stopped wearing their masks and we just had we had a a great season. So uh, that worked out really well. Yeah, that's great to hear. So as you mentioned, uh, you are uh, you're a professor, so you teach now. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. I have sort of an odd history. Um, when I was when I was a kid, half the time, I fantasized about being a scientist, I was especially interested in fossils and dinosaurs and rocks and crystals. So I thought I might be a geologist or a paleontologist of some kind. Uh, but then I also fantasized about being a writer. I started writing stories when I was very young, five or six years old, about dinosaurs attacking the earth and people running away from them. And, um, and I went through a period, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do. And eventually, I realized I could satisfy both of my passions as a science writer. Um, so I became—I started writing about science 
when I was um, in my 30s. I had just turned 30 when I graduated from, uh, from graduate school in journalism. And um, I, so I've been practicing science journalism for more than 40 years now, and I love it. It, it's, it um, allows me to indulge in my curiosity and science and in all the philosophical and spiritual implications of science and to write about it. Um, and as a science writer, uh, especially the more I've been doing it, the more I've become deliberately experimental and even, I like to think, uh, literary in the ways that I write about science and all these uh, all these related issues. So that's primarily what I do. I've only been teaching. I've been writing about science forever. I've only been teaching for 15 or, or uh, 16 years, but the teaching very nicely complements my science because I talk about all the stuff that I'm interested in uh, with my students and they give me ideas that feed back into my writing. So it works really well. Yeah, for sure. And uh, also, I think it's uh, really important to point out that you don't just write about science, but you write about thinking about science. That's right. This is really, really sort of strange area. Well, one of my big, so I'm a, a generalist. I've been very fortunate in my career in that I've worked at places, I've been with Scientific American on and off since the mid uh, 1980s. I've, I've worked at places that encouraged me to indulge all my interests. They didn't try to channel me into one slot. And so I've written about uh, particle physics and cosmology and evolutionary biology and neuroscience, all these different fields. Um, as my career has progressed, the topic that keeps pulling me back in over and over again is what philosophers sometimes call the mind-body problem. In a very, in a kind of narrow technical sense, the mind-body problem is about how matter makes mind. Uh, More specifically, how the brain, this three-pound chunk of stuff in our skulls, generates perceptions and memories and feelings, emotions, all the things that constitute our experience of the world. The the more I think about it, the more I see the mind-body problem at the core of all the, the great mysteries of science and philosophy and, um, and even of spirituality and religion. Uh, and it's the mind-body problem in one way or another has been the focus, uh, or at least a really important focus of all my books. This is one of the hardest problems there is. So I wonder if you have any advice to any younger scholars or really anybody who's interested in uh, into venturing into those subjects. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I you know, uh, my first book was called The End of Science, and I was I was uh, predicting that some of the major fields of science were going to or were already hitting a wall, running into their fundamental limits. 
And um, as a result of writing that book, which came out in the mid nineties, uh, I started becoming pretty pessimistic about physics, especially and, you know, particle physics, the quest to find what the, the, the basic constituents of matter are. And so when young people said, what field should I go into? I'd say, I'd stay away from particle physics, but neuroscience and other fields that are related to the mind-body problem, it seems to me, have um, unlimited potential for growth, in part because the mind-body problem is so fantastically complicated and so deep. I mean, we're just scratching the surface of it. Um, If I was a young person who's really intellectually curious and wanted to do uh, research that might have the potential to create practical advances, I mean, if we can understand where schizophrenia comes from, for example, that would be immensely beneficial for uh, humanity. But in the course of doing that, maybe you find something related to some of the really deep philosophical mysteries that come out of the mind-body problem, like the question of free will. What does free will even mean? What are choices? Uh, Do these really exist or are they an illusion? This is another mind-body related problem that, uh, that I'm really obsessed with. For young people, there's so many different ways to get at the mind-body problem. There's artificial intelligence, there's cognitive science and, and psychology. Um, I think the one that has the most potential for practical advances would be uh, neuroscience, the study of how the brain works. Although genetics is also, also really exciting. And then, of course, there's a field in which genetics and neuroscience are combined. So there's lots of stuff going out there going on out there related to the, uh, the mind and body. So your latest book, uh, Pay Attention, is very different to what uh, you have written before. So can you tell us what is it about and how you came to writing it? Yeah, so this book is really a departure for me. Um, and it comes out of several uh, areas of inquiry that um, they kind of bear on each other and that uh, I'd been pursuing for a long time. One is the mind-body problem. And, um, you know, the question of how uh, it, we're, we're, we're physical creatures. And yet we experience the world through um, all these uh, subjective perceptions and memories and feelings and, uh, and so forth. And it seemed to me for quite a while that uh, scientific and even philosophical approaches to the mind-body problem emit to greater or lesser degrees the lived experience of, um, of the mind. They, they don't capture what it actually feels like to be a human being. And so um, I decided to write a book to try to capture uh, the feeling of being a person who's actually obsessed with the mind-body problem and is thinking about it 
constantly on and off through the course of a day uh, as a way, I think, I hope of contributing to the literature on the mind-body problem. Another thing that I hope to do in this book, I'm, I'm kind of an old hippie, so I've been interested in, in meditation and uh, spirituality and mysticism since I was a little kid. Mysticism being these states of awareness where we feel like we are confronting absolute reality. We are sensing God. Uh, people describe their mystical experiences in various ways, but they're quite extraordinary. And there are various ways of cultivating them. The supreme mystical experience is supposedly uh, something called enlightenment. There are various terms for it, but enlightenment is a very common uh, term when you see things as they really are in a kind of permanent way. As soon as I learned about enlightenment when I was a kid, I wanted to have it. And I've been pursuing it in one way or another uh, since I was since I was very young. I actually became a science writer because I thought enlightenment might be achievable through reason and science, as opposed to these uh, these more ineffable spiritual states that you get through meditation or psychedelic drugs. But a key part of enlightenment for me is simply paying attention to your own life, being very aware, aware moment by moment of what's going on in your, in your own head and appreciating it as it's sort of going through your head. And so another thing that I wanted to do uh, with this book and the, the, um, and the title reflects this goal is to pay very close attention to uh, my own life for my own spiritual benefit and to write about it in a way that other people could relate to. Other people can see their own obsessions and feelings um, mirrored in the obsessions and feelings that I have over the course of, uh, of a day. But the book really was, an important part of it was to try to help myself wake up. This is what enlightenment is about. You're waking up from the, from the dream of ordinary reality and seeing a higher reality. And you do that by just by opening your eyes and paying attention to what's right there in front of you. So it was those two goals, which are kind of scientific slash philosophical and spiritual that really motivated this book. So your experiences, uh, profound realizations, which you said uh, you had when you were quite young, which is quite admirable to have uh, such uh, insights and also passions uh, really manifested in this main protagonist who is Iman Chul. So can you just describe who he is and what is his reality? Well, this book is, uh, let, let me try to describe, it, it, it's an odd book. It, it's kind of, I'm trying to create a new genre here, really. Um, technically, the book is fiction because the procra 
protagonist, Eamon Toole, doesn't actually exist. And there are other characters in the book who don't actually exist. And some of the scenes have been altered slightly uh, for various reasons. Uh, but the, it, this book is actually a work of journalism. It's based on very detailed uh, notes that I took over the course of many days, actually. Um, while I was commuting to work, I was teaching a class, I was uh, having lunch with some other professors at my school and arguing with them. And, and finally, it ends with me meeting my girlfriend in Manhattan. I take a ferry over to Manhattan and, um, and meet her there. Um, and all these are things that really happened. Uh, and I recorded what was going on with handwritten notes. I also literally recorded some scenes, like classroom scenes, conversation with my colleagues, conversations with my girlfriend with a digital recorder and transcribe those. Uh, all to try to create as lifelike a uh, depiction of a day in this, the, the life of this character, Eamon Tool, who's really my alter ego. That's, I, I mean, I basically say that um, in uh, the, the beginning of the book. And I was trying to describe what I'm feeling, what's happening in a, in a way that captures what it's like to actually be inside my head with a slightly hallucinatory, surreal tone to it all that captures how I feel when I'm living my own life. Um, so this was a real challenge for me as a writer because most of my journalism is pretty conventional and I try to be objective and I try to be rational and I'm trying to show what's going on in my head um, as I'm trying to come up with these supposedly objective, rational pieces of science writing. What's going on in my head is actually very chaotic and strange and lots of different ideas and feelings colliding with each other in ways that are, that can be, uh, that can be very unpredictable. I'm thinking about quantum mechanics and the neural code and evolutionary theory. I'm also thinking about death and I'm thinking about my girlfriend. So there's a lot of love and, um, and sex and romantic longing in the book because that's my experience of life. And it's the experience of, I assume, most people out there. So as you mentioned, Eamon uh, is your alter ego. So I was just wondering, how different is he from you? Is there something that you wanted to add to him, for example, or maybe something you wanted to subtract? <laughs> um, I tried to be as honest as I, as I could be um, in uh, depicting Eamon. Uh, I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I changed his name and changed the name of some of the other characters in the book was because my girlfriend, whom I call Emily in the book, um, is a very private person. 
and um, and she was actually uh, horrified at the thought of our uh, some of our you know, intimate moments being made public um, in a book like this. But there is there's very little daylight between um, Eamon Toole and uh, and myself. Uh, he he has some personality traits that are maybe not so pleasant <laughs> that certainly mm-hmm. drive my girlfriend crazy. And I tried to put those in there too. My relationship with Emily is a, a kind of running theme throughout the book. And, and this is related to the, uh, the theme of spirituality and paying attention in a spiritual sense. One of the things that I fight against in myself is what I call habituation. It means getting used to things, uh, taking things for granted in a way that means we end up kind of sleepwalking through our own lives. We become almost like uh, robots or automatons. And our brains are designed to do this because we don't want to approach every single task that we have as though we we were encountering it for the first time. Our brains are trying to minimize the amount of work that they have to do to get through a day. The problem is that we start seeing, we stop seeing what is right in front of us. And I have this tendency, I think it's a human tendency. And what it means is that, for example, when it comes to my relationship with Uh, my girlfriend, Emily, I stop seeing her. I stop appreciating what a a wild, magical, improbable creature she is. So that's another one of my goals, Uh, was another goal in the book to, to focus on uh, Emily almost as a kind of uh, stand-in for the strangeness and wildness and unpredictability of life. So we get to know Eamon Toole quite close, all about his everyday life and his inner struggles. So I am wondering what what roles other people play in Eamon's life? So you already mentioned Emily, she plays a really profound role. But what about others? Do they make a lot of input into his life or does he try and shun away from them? Or Yeah, well, one of the scenes that readers uh, seem to really enjoy is uh, one where I have uh, lunch with um, three other professors. And these are real people. Uh, at my school, all have retired since I wrote this. Uh, since I wrote this uh, scene, one is an historian of science. Uh, this is Jim. Then there is a uh, a ke- chemical uh, engineer, and um, I actually can't remember the name I gave him in the book. His real name is Bernie, and uh, and there's a mathematician named Bob. And we go out to lunch, we go to the faculty lounge, and we end up talking, as we often do, about truth, about, 
about mm-hmm. whether truth is attainable and what truth is, whether it's attainable through science specifically. And this is something that Jim, who's one of my dearest friends, I, I think I, I can just say his name. His name is Jim McClellan, very distinguished historian of science who studied under one of the greatest philosophers of the modern era, a guy named uh, Thomas Kuhn. Jim studied under Thomas Kuhn at Princeton back in the 1970s. Uh, Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which basically said, suggested that we never, we never can have absolute truth. That is not attainable. Truth always comes to us through a filter of language and through our cultural prejudices and biases, which are constantly changing. And my friend Jim was permanently, the way I like to put it, infected by Kuhn's idea. And he's what's called a postmodernist, meaning that he's very skeptical about the whole concept of truth, whether scientific or or, uh, religious or philosophical. And he says that we just have to figure out uh, things as best we can while acknowledging we never really know what's going on. Jim and I have been arguing about this in real life for decades. And we had uh, an argument about it at this lunch with our our friends, uh, Bernie and Bob, chiming in now and then. And I tried to express my uh, views. Jim expressed uh, his. And in a way, this scene is... It's related to everything else that happens in the book, but because this question of what is real and what we can really know, um, this is a question that I, I, I hope uh, is raised by the rest of the book that I certainly um, am personally obsessed with, and um, it comes up constantly in my own thinking. In my conversation with Jim, I took a very hard stance for what's sometimes called uh, scientific realism. I said, I think science really does figure out what's going on. Um, You know, we know that there are atoms. We know that there's gravity. We know that there are these things called neurons in our brains that generate consciousness, even though we're not sure how. And and Jim is throwing all these counter arguments uh, at me. And the funny thing is that since my book came out, Jim was very flattered that I wrote about him in this way. Mm -hmm. Since my book came out, um, we have continued to argue. And if anything, I think I've drifted a little bit closer to Jim's postmodern position. But yeah, that, that that was a really important relationship for me to depict in my book. Those were some really intense lunches, I suppose. <laughs> and in a book, the lunch you describe, I was actually waiting for somebody to chuck a falafel across the table. <laughs> right. Well, we yell at each other a lot, but um, it has, so far, it has never gotten uh, physically violent. But this is, listen, you're in academia now. I think you're you're in neuroscience. Is that right? You're You're probably interested in the mind-body problem as well. 
Um, I'm a neuroscience, but I'm actually more basic scientist. So I'm a hard biochemist and molecular biologist rather ah. than a computational neuroscience. So I'm really grounded to earth. <laughs> okay. Well, but in academia, if you go out with a bunch of your colleagues, I assume that sometimes you end up talking about some deep philosophical uh, question, like whether uh, free will really um, exists or whether the universe is in some sense deterministic. One of the great pleasures of being in academia for me, and as I said, I, I, I joined it relatively uh, late in life, and it was because I needed the money. I wasn't making enough as a pure freelance science journalist. But you're with all these smart people who have their own obsessions and their own knowledge base to draw on. So, um, yeah, I end up having a lot of conversations like the one I described in the book. Although that one was particularly uh, fun for me, I must say. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and with us, with us as well, with biochemists, it's the conversation turns to all of these higher topics instantly, really. Yeah. And, and, you know, so if you are in, if you are in basic research, even if you're not involved in, in try and thinking about consciousness and free will and things like that, a lot of scientists still want to learn something that can um, make life better for humans. You want to find a better kind of medicine. You want to come up with a, uh, a gene therapy that can get rid of uh, inherited diseases, maybe cures for uh, schizophrenia or diabetes, uh, some mm. of the other, you know, some of the other great diseases. This kind of research raises the question, which also goes through my book, how much can we transform ourselves? What's the future of humanity? Uh, can genetic engineering and neuroscience and artificial intelligence uh, somehow come together to transform what we are and turn us into uh, some kind of superhuman cyborg? Um, this, is, this is an idea that's been out there actually ever since I started writing about science, and it's very popular uh, today. And I write about it a lot in a conventional journalistic way. I also uh, obsess over it a lot in my book, Pay Attention. So there's a scene, for example, where I am, um, I'm commuting to New Jersey from upstate New York, and I end up having to go through uh, Grand Central Station, which is the big train station in, uh, in New York City. And I'm getting off a train and I have to get to a subway and it's really crowded in the lobby of the train station, all these people rushing around and I'm fantasizing about having a brain chip uh, with Wi-Fi that can communicate with all the other people who have brain chips with Wi-Fi in their heads in a way that we don't run into each other. That makes the whole commute more uh, more efficient. And that leads me to fantasize about whether a brain chip like that could make my relations with my girlfriend more, uh, more efficient. So um, 
no matter what science you're doing, some mm. of these really wild philosophical and real world possibilities um, arise from it or are implied by it. And I tried to bring those ideas into my book as well. Do you think this uh, sort of yearning for this kind of knowledge is uh, just part of our human nature? I, you know, it's hard to say. So you're a scientist, so you obviously have have uh, a powerful uh, sense of curiosity. I think all humans do. I think curiosity. I, I'm actually. I, I'm very curious about curiosity. I've been I've been doing a lot of research on it recently. Curiosity, according to some scientists, is an ancient adaptive trait that we have in common with possibly all other organisms. Um, in the same way that uh, we have fear in common with a lot of other organisms, and curiosity, you can think of as as just being this very practical trait in that. Um, we need to, if only to find food, we need to go out into the world and investigate what's there, find if, figure out if there's anything uh, edible. The search for uh, mates that can allow us to uh, reproduce also um, would benefit from organisms having, uh, having some curiosity. Mm. But counter to that, is what I was talking about before, um, this tendency toward habituation and toward becoming more like automatons. Um, you know, we sort of figure out where the food sources are. We we find a mate, and um, and we start start having children, and then we stop being curious in some ways. Um, I even see this in some of the young people that I teach, and I see it as my job to uh, to try to get them to see how totally bizarre the world is, how totally bizarre everything is. Uh, every single ordinary instant of life, this is something I tell my my students all the time, is completely wildly improbable if you just open your eyes and look at it. And the most improbable thing of all is your own self. You're this creature that can even look at the world and think about your own improbability. That's the most improbable thing of all. So I think a lot of people don't see the world this way. They become used to the world. They take it for granted and uh, one of the reasons I wrote um, Pay Attention is to try to get people to wake up and see how, how utterly improbable, um, infinitely improbable the world is, no matter where you are, no matter what kind of person you are. It's all strange. And this is, I think this comes out of mysticism I think you can find strands of this kind of astonishment in the face of existence and uh, some of the great mystical uh, texts. I also see science pointing in the same direction. 
science, I think, has really uh, established that the origin of the universe was was wildly improbable. You know, wh- why did the Big Bang happen in the first place? What was there before the Big Bang? Scientists have no idea. Some will tell you that they have an idea, but they really don't. And why did the universe take this particular form rather than some other form that might not have allowed for our existence? Again, lots of ideas, but it's all very hand wavy. How did life begin on Earth? A total mystery. How did life, once it began, manage to become complicated enough to generate creatures like us with consciousness, which is something else that is totally inexplicable. So the the way I like to put this sometimes, if you put all these improbabilities together, you you get what you might call an infinitely improbable uh present which we're in right now and something that's infinitely improbable and yet it happens is what you might define as a miracle so uh that's one of the goals of my writing especially um when i was writing pay attention and in some of my more recent work as well to get people to see the miraculousness of not of this thing or that thing or the Big Bang in particular or even the origin of life, but all of it, all of it. And the and the most miraculous thing you, of all is what you see in the mirror every morning. Yeah, I found uh, this uh, sort of, I don't know if you can call it the false dichotomy uh, between these realizations, unbridled curiosity and set rationalism really fascinating. And if I can read a passage uh, uh, from your book, uh, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, so Eamon, he is given a lecture to his students and he says, how universal is reason? Sometimes reason leads all of us or most of us in the same direction. It overcomes the differences in our subjective perceptions, but often it doesn't. When it comes to things like religion and morality, and government policies and even science smart rational people can look at the same data and reach different conclusions. And then Eamon thinks, yeah, think of all of the brainiacs who believe in crap like singularity, strings, multiverses. I alone am truly rational. (laughs) So, So to me, it was just a paradox, but there's just so much in that paragraph. Yeah, um, thank you. I I I like that uh, as well. And I hope you realize at the end when I say I alone am truly rational, I'm being ironic. Although sometimes I have that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I assume everybody does to an extent. Sometimes you just think every other person in this on the planet is crazy except for me. And of course, that's what a crazy person thinks, right? <laughs> um, this the mixture of of reason and superstition and bias and all these other forms of irrationality that i find in myself as well as seeing in seeing in other people it, it it's fascinating to me i love dwelling on it one way i try to bring that out in the book is through my relationship with my girlfriend emily so I'm, you know, I'm the 
intellectual science writer trying to figure out how the world works and uh, really using science as my basis for understanding reality. Meanwhile, my girlfriend is into tarot cards and uh, astrology and, um, and homeopathy. And so there's part of me that is really dismissive of, uh, of her views in, of the world. And I think she's being irrational and superstitious in some of the stuff that she believes. But at the same time, I love her and I also respect her. She's really smart. And um, she points out fallacies in my thinking all the time. And so I have this constant struggle to reconcile my worldview with her worldview, which is making me second guess myself even more than I would ordinarily. And I see our relationship as kind of a, a, a larger version of something that is going on inside me all the time anyway. I want to be reasonable, but it's really hard. To be human means mm. that it's on some level you cannot be reasonable. You know, we're also biological creatures with all these instincts and desires and fears programmed into us. Uh, so we just do we just do the best that we can. To, to say that you recognize the irrationality in yourself is not the same as saying that you can get rid of that irrationality. I think all you can do is sort try to be as aware of it as possible and, uh, and perhaps m- minimize the degree to which it makes you do really stupid things. Do you think this is down to the problem of demarcation, of finding common ground where it cannot be found? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, so I, I'm not sure demarcation is sometimes used. Uh, that term comes up when philosophers are trying to distinguish real science from pseudoscience. And there have been all these attempts to uh, come up with re- rules for doing that, demarcation rules. So Freudian psychoanalysis, that's definitely pseudoscience. Marxism, pseudoscience. Particle physics, that's real science. Chemistry, that's real science. But w- when you get smart people involved in these debates, all the lines start blurring or just becoming obliterated. We're constantly uh, arguing about what is the line between a rational belief and an irrational belief. We've seen that in the last year with the arguments about um, how serious a threat COVID is and what we should do about it. Uh, this, This argument about what counts as real science or not is very relevant to the debate over uh, over climate change. Uh, it would be great if there were some artificial intelligence program that could have these clever rules built into it that could look, for example, at all the stuff that people post on Facebook or on Twitter or other social media and and filter out the stupid ideas from the good ideas. But that's just not, unfortunately, that's not how the world works. This is just, it's another, 
it's another thing that makes being human so difficult and so interesting is trying to figure out what's a good belief and what's a bad belief and where's the line between them. So why do a lot of super smart people think that if you're super smart, you should have the postmodern view of truth? And why is Eamon so infuriated by it? (laughs) Well, so I have to go back in time a little bit to channel how Eamon felt um, at the, uh, when he was having this argument with his, uh, his friend. It's because if you are, if you kind of throw up your hands and say that there's no truth uh, possible for us humans, then that implies that all the models showing that climate change um, is happening and that it's going to be a serious threat for humanity and the future, that we shouldn't believe those. Uh, All our medical models that show that if you take this medication or you undergo this procedure, that you will have this positive outcome, we shouldn't believe those things either. We shouldn't believe that masks can help reduce uh, infection by by COVID-19. Some of these philosophical debates have enormous practical consequences. They're not just they're not just academic. One of the reasons I became a science journalist is because I do think that science is capable of um, of discovering truth, of figuring out what's going on in the world, and that some of these issues are tremendously important. They really can affect the quality of life. They might even affect whether humanity has a future or not. At the same time, the reason I think postmodernism will never go away and why it shouldn't go away, part of it is because of what I was just talking about, the demarcation problem. It's still so hard to figure out uh, what is a legitimate belief or not. There's some areas of science that have terrible records. One I write about a lot is is, uh, psychiatry. Our understanding of what mental illness is, is very poor. Our treatments for mental illness are very poor. And Mm. and yet psychiatry, the establishment, the institution of psychiatry projects this uh, attitude of great confidence and and, uh, gets behind various medications. Uh, So in some of these areas, I think skepticism of what some of the leading scientists are saying is, is merited. So I I guess I'm trying to say is that the argument that I'm having with my friends over lunch about what science can really know, what we can know through reason um, and what we can't know, I don't think it'll ever be settled. It's one of the, it's, and it's not just a question for individuals. It's a question for whole societies and for humanity as a whole. And I think it's better if we're humble and modest about our own capacity for figuring out the truth. One thing I've become more aware of as I've gotten older is that humanity is never more dangerous. Humans are never more dangerous than when they think, when they're sure 
they know what's going on, whether their belief system is religious or scientific or political, that kind of dogmatic certainty leads to fanaticism. It can lead to war and oppression and genocide and, you know, not just bad papers in philosophy journals. It can lead to horrible outcomes. And that's why I think more modesty and humility is justified and postmodernism helps promote that modesty and humility. Yeah, for sure. And I think you really had hit the nail uh, nail on its head here that even some of these ephemeral ponderings, they do indeed shape our society of what we think and what we should achieve and especially what we can achieve. Because as you say, it is quite uh, limited. Yeah, I mean, this is um, going back to the mind-body problem. Uh, one of the realizations I've come to is that when we, you know, we, so what science tries to do is to figure out what's going on out there in uh, nature. So how does a how does a brain produce various conscious states? Um, relate closely related to that are questions um, about what are the possibilities that science can give us to alter that reality? So that's uh, technology like brain chips and, and, uh, and genetic engineering. And then there are all the ethical and moral and political questions arising out of some of the technologies that we might possibly explore. So what it means is that um, you can't separate questions of what, actually is there in the world uh, from what there can be in the world and from Mm. what there should be in the world. I think it's all entangled. Philosophers and scientists want to separate the question of what is from all the other stuff. But I think that they get uh, a phony, misleading simplicity when they do that. All these questions, to my mind, are are all... uh, interconnected and that we get a more accurate picture of ourself. Another way of expressing the mind-body problem is what are we? What does it mean to be human? What am I? What are you? And if you think hard about that question, you are immediately led to the question of what you can be and what you should be. And the question of what you are, can be, and should be, that's all one whole. Um, and I, and that realization should also make us more modest, I would hope, about reaching premature conclusions about what we are. So what discoveries about yourself and also society along your journey to writing, pay attention, surprised you the most? Um, yeah, uh, that... Um, that I do have, I, I, I'm, I'm so, even though I, I constantly try to see the world as this miracle that I was just going on about before, mm-hmm. um, my own brain conspires against me to take it for granted and to take some of the people that I love uh, for granted and things that I do that I love, like teaching and writing. Uh, for granted. And, um, and, 
they're very powerful forces pushing me in that, that direction. Uh, simple laziness is one. <laughs> uh, and, um, but writing the book, I think has given me a habit that is, it's like an anti-habit habit. In other words, it's, it's a way of constantly reminding myself to step back from whatever I'm doing, from whatever I'm thinking about, from whatever I'm feeling, and just try to see it um, as if I was seeing it for the first time and going, okay, <laughs> yeah, this is, there it is again. There's, there's the miraculousness. There's this uh, infinite improbability. I don't see it very often, but if I stop and give myself a moment to reflect on it, then I can feel it. But it takes effort. So our listeners will have to find out from the book the Amon's relationship to the videos of elephants and chihuahuas hanging out. So <laughs> I was just wondering, under which circumstances do you see yourself sending out such videos and to whom? <laughs> All right. So this is a reference to uh, my girlfriend. She loves these videos in which you have these improbable couples Uh And she actually literally sent me one of uh, an elephant that had become friendly with a chihuahua, which is like the tiniest dog that there is. And they're, you know, the chihuahuas kind of dancing around the feet of the elephant. The only thing that alarmed me about that video is that I kept worrying that the elephant was going to step on the chihuahua and, and, uh, and crush it. Um, I don't, I'm kind of like, a, I'm a little bit of a grouchy guy. And um, I don't send out videos like that myself. I try to pay attention to all the ones that, uh, that my girlfriend sends me because what I've realized over time is that she actually has great taste. She knows that I, you know, I don't like, I don't like it when people send me, you know, a list of 10 funny jokes or cat videos and things like that. But she knows me really well. And so she often sends me videos like that Chihuahua elephant one that just give me a feeling of delight. And again, remind me of what a strange place the world is where an elephant and a Chihuahua can become friendly. So I'm not sending videos like that to her, but I'm happy when she sends them to me. All right, taking notes. Send out <laughs> more Chihuahua elephant videos to grouchy guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah. Um, so uh, when the pandemic hit, I was just about to go to um, Africa, to Namib Namibia, Africa, for, with a, on a great adventure with one of my dearest friends and with my son, uh, McNeil. And then the pandemic forced us to cancel that trip. And so I was trying to figure out what to do with myself over my summer vacation. You know, I get three or four months as a college professor every summer for writing and doing various things. And, uh, and so 
I suddenly had all this time in my hand and I decided that I was going to um, try to learn quantum mechanics with the mathematics. It was triggered in part by a friend of mine named Sabina Hassenfelder, who's this brilliant German physicist, sent me a, a video that she'd made trying to explain some of the uh, strange behavior of electrons and, uh, and photons. And I didn't understand it. And I was very frustrated because it had technical terms and some mathematics in it. And uh, I've been writing about quantum mechanics for decades without understanding a lot of the technical jargon and the mathematics. And I thought, hey, it's not too late. I'm going to learn all that stuff. I'm going to learn about quantum mechanics, the way a physicist learns it. And so that's what I've been doing over the last year. And I just this summer, I, I started putting all my notes into a book. It's not going to be a book about quantum mechanics. It's going to be a book about an old professor who was a literature major in college trying to learn quantum mechanics with the mathematics and all that stuff. So that that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, that's a great project. <laughs> it's really been fun so far because the thing is, quantum mechanics is related to everything. It's related mm -hmm. to the mind-body problem because there are all these questions about the role of the observer in, uh, in quantum mechanics. It's even related, I mean, I, I can't go into the details, but it's related, it was related to politics to all the insanity that was happening in the United States last last year with the election and with the, and the pandemic uh, so quantum mechanics in a way is like the the enigma at the core of science and if you're trying to understand quantum mechanics you really are trying to understand everything about the world and so that's why the project is so much fun and by the way the smartest physicists in the world, people like Richard Feynman say that you can't understand quantum mechanics. <laughs> so mm -hmm. what does it mean to understand something that, that all these smarty pants say cannot be understood? That's part of what makes the, uh, the project so appealing to me. You're right at the deep end of the pool, are you? <laughs> yeah, it's great. I like to be there. Mm. I, like to always, I like to be in a state where I don't really know what the hell is going on. I think I'm very I'm, I'm very comfortable in that position. That's great. So where can our listeners find more information about your work, like your writings and also your book? Well, I have a personal website, uh, johnhorgan.org. And um, but my book is available on um, on Amazon and um, the my publisher, uh, which is called uh, Terra Nova Press, if you Google Terra Nova and pay attention, you also will find uh, will find my book. But I think it, at this point, it might actually be easier to get it from uh, Amazon than from uh, from the publisher. But I've also written about it for my Scientific American uh, column, so there's quite a bit of about it online. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really illuminating discussion. Thank you, Glenn. I really appreciate it.